0: Hey, this is Memorial Day, and we want to say thank you to all of our veterans. We want to say thank you to all those that have uh, sacrificed their lives to give us the freedom to even be here today. And I'd like to ask all of our veterans, if, you're, if you've served in any branch of our military services, if you guys and ladies would stand, if you're here this morning. Stand. Hey, oh, great. Excellent. Excellent. Great. We thank you. Thank you each and every one for that. Now, um, our topic this morning in this series that we are going to wrap up today asking the question why the world, uh, why our nation seems to love Jesus, but sometimes not the church. And um, we're going to be talking about Jesus, the church, and politics today. And how do those things go together? And uh, do they go together? We're gonna begin by taking a look at a short video. So, take a look at the screen. I'll be so glad when this election is over. Here, do something with this. I'm so confused. I hardly even know what I'm doing. (laughs) You're sitting on your cannoli. (laughs) Look at this. Everything's out of control. What's wrong? What's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. I'm trying to vote my conscience and I I, I, I can't even hear it anymore.
1: There is no choice. My only choice is not to vote at all. Democracy is horrible. Absolutely horrible. You're so
0: right. Democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for all of the others. And that is exactly why you have to vote. No. No. Yes. No. Yes if you don't vote you can't complain complaining is all i
1: have left the system isn't perfect but it's important to participate even if you get it wrong just go to the polls and do what you think is right
0: things were so much simpler where i come from there's only one big giant office and whoever outruns the fireball wins thing <laughs> All right. And you know, that may not be too much of a stretch for most of us this year, right? Anyway. Um, so what did Jesus teach about the role of government? Well, the topic of paying taxes. Uh, to Rome came up one day in a conversation. The religious leaders brought it up, the Pharisees, because it was a really controversial topic. In fact, it was one of the most controversial topics among the Jewish people of the day. And, uh, and they said to Jesus, is it right if uh, Jesus said, or uh, the religious leaders said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, so Jesus took a coin And he held it up and said, whose picture's on this coin and what's the superscription? What's the inscription on this coin? And the Caesar during Jesus' day was Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription on the uh, coin read this, these words, the divine son of Augustus Caesar. So Tiberius viewed himself and asked all his subjects to view himself as a god, Now, the Jews bristled at that idea because there's only one God. And you're not supposed to worship any other God except that's the very first commandment. You worship one God. So they thought they had Jesus over a barrel right here. Uh, But Jesus showed his brilliance once again. So when he took that coin, whose picture? What's the inscription on it? And he went on to say this. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, that's a really short statement, but it's a really profound one because Jesus, in in that short statement, is saying this, that civil government has a God-given role to play in this world as it is. And if that's the case, then a government has the right to collect taxes. A government has the right to be supported in carrying out the God-given role that's been assigned to a government. So another way of saying that is, April 15th is, all, is, is okay. Jesus would have filed a return, okay? Maybe you think he wouldn't. <laughs> Jesus would have filed a tax return. Uh, now, what is the role of government? The Apostle Paul spells that out for us in Romans chapter 13. And this is what he says. He says, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course, you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So if you submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, so you should submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but to keep a clear conscience. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Is that a part of the word that we want to be in the word of God? And, of course, the word of God is stating great principles without obviously being able to tackle all the the minute injustices and things like that. But those are the basic principles God is setting out about the role of human government in human affairs. Now, there's one other thing, though, that's very clear in Jesus' statement to the Pharisees that day. Even though governments are instituted by God, all human governments have corruption in them because they're led by corrupt people, imperfect people. This same Tiberius Caesar who was in rule when Jesus made this statement in A.D. 26. Uh, In A.D. 26, he went to his home on the Isle of Capri. And there's a 1,000-foot cliff that is called, to this day, the Tiberius Leap, where Tiberius, for his own sadistic pleasure, would throw over that cliff to 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 their deaths his discarded sex partners. Tiberius was big into sex trafficking. When Jesus made that statement, he was the ruler of the Roman Empire. And when Paul made his statement that I just read about the role of government, and even worse, Caesar was ruling, named Nero, the most cruel, crazy, insane emperor of Rome that ever sat on their throne. There is a principle in the scripture, another principle in the scripture, that the Lord uses imperfect governments to bring a measure of law and order and well-being through the systems that are set in place in that society for the well-being of the citizens, and that that imperfect government will continue under God's blessings as long as it works within the boundaries that God has assigned to it. But there's another principle that we see in the scripture. That when a government steps across their God-given moral boundaries to the extent that, it's, that the level of evil and corruption begin to undermine that government in carrying out law and order and justice, when there's when when it, when a certain line crossed, that government will be removed from power and another government will be raised up and that happened to rome you know it also seems to be true in history that all governments and societies tend to move more and more with each generation toward more corruption that over that corruption overtakes goodness and justice there have been many nations in history that would have seemed to be so powerful, so entrenched, so strong, that they were completely invincible. Go way back to early world history. The Assyrian Empire, the, great, the first great empire to crash onto the scene of, of, of the earth in the, middle, in, the, in the Middle East, the Assyrian Empire, they were powerful. They controlled the world. Then the, but they fell. They fell. They they evaporated into history. The Egyptian empires, Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then the rise and the fall of governments ever since the Roman Empire fell throughout the Middle Ages, Napoleon and France, and right up to modern times in our nation. And our nation has been blessed with a liberty and a freedom like no other nation in the history of the world. And we, we have risen to become the most powerful nation that's probably ever existed in the history of the world. So it's important for us to know, given the, given the rise and fall of nations, it's important for us to know what is that boundary line that governments and nations cross that God, call, when, and, and that God will call them to account and, and, and pay a price for. Well, we learn about this. Uh, one place we learn about this in the Scripture is in the book of Judges. This was a, t- a period of 400 years in Israel's history when a series of different rulers and governments were instituted among the Jewish people. Uh, but every single one of them, there were seven rises and falls of governments during, during those 400 years. Every single one of them rose and fell, no exception. And there's a statement in the book of Judges that's made twice that gives us the reason. And this is the line that God lays out for nations. It says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. In other words, they were being ruled by these judges. It was before the kingdom, the, the monarchy had been set up in Israel. But here's the statement. It says, in those days, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. It says it twice, chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 25. Now, later on, Isaiah, and this was after the monarchy had already been well-established, but you know what? The same pattern we have when the kings, when the kings were set up in Israel. They rose, they fell. They rose, they fell. Uh, this is what it says. Isaiah says in chapter 5, verse 20, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What is, what's that line? What are those boundaries that God says, Nations, you can't cross that? Uh, well, it's when a nation gets to the point of redefining Morality other words, They're taking the place of God. Now, here's a very serious question for, for us. Could our nation fall? Could our nation follow that same pattern? If we don't, we would be the only one in history. We, we would be the exception. It's a serious question. It's a serious question for us to think about on Memorial Day when we realize that the freedoms and the blessings that we enjoy are because of the sacrifice and the blood of tens of thousands of men and women that have literally given their life to preserve our freedoms. In fact, I just read earlier this week that one million men and women in our armed forces have died since the birth of our country to preserve these freedoms. That's a million people. Uh, 58,000 in Vietnam... 29,000 storming the gates of, of uh, Normandy in World War II. And then in two th- from, uh, uh, up to 2015, 6,800 uh, men and women have died in Iraq and in Afghanistan to give us the privileges to continue to live in the nation that we live in. So could we lose all of this well, only the Lord knows finally when a nation steps across the boundaries. But we have to ask ourselves as a nation, are we in any instances as a, as a, as a nation right now into calling evil good and good evil? Are we into redefining the moral boundaries that God has set down from the very beginning. Well, I guess I would follow that with another question. What is the probably the the most current controversial topic that's in our nation right now that that we're dealing with? Well, last week we talked about it, and if you weren't here last week, uh, I I really want to encourage you to, to take a listen to you know, go online, listen, go uh, to the app or whatever and take a listen to that because I can't cover all that this morning. But last week we discussed how all human beings, every one of us, have struggles inside. Some of some people struggle right now with gender confusion. About three in every thousand people. Struggle with gender, gender identity, gender confusion, and sometimes we just call that an issue. It's not just an issue. That's about real people with real struggles, just like all of us struggle. And I made I made a big point of that last week because we're not to be around casting stones and judging and, and 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 cutting and and devaluing the worth of any human being, no matter what their struggle might be. We need to have Christ's compassion and Christ's love and Christ's care because Christ came to set us free and deal with and heal all of our struggles, no matter what they might be, gender, identity, or whatever it is. So we need to be clear on that. But in the middle of what we said last week, we did say this. We just quoted Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew 19:4 when he was asked a question about divorce. A little bit different topic, but... But what he said in answer to divorce applies to to this issue as well. Uh, Because here's what he said in Mark chapter, in Matthew 19, verse 4. He basically said that from the very beginning, God created human beings as male and female. But we know the story. And Jesus said it again. He said it last week that, in our current state, humanity, we're separated from God. That story we began way back in, in Eden with our first parents. And God has exited the human heart. And when that happened, it left our hearts in darkness. And, and we, took, we tried to take control of, of all of the uh, definitions of our life. But the problem is that with God vacated from the premises of our heart, all of our orientations... All of our desires inside that seem to be right, they lead us in the wrong directions. And so when it comes, so our culture is now telling everybody, whatever your struggle is, whatever you find inside yourself, that's where you find your true self. You find your true self by looking inside yourself. But you know what? That is a dead-end street because we are fallen, we are twisted, we are broken inside of ourselves. And Jesus came into the world to bring us back to God's light. He came, here's, what, here's how Jesus said it. In John chapter 12, 35, he says, those who walk in darkness, I'm going to put in parentheses here, those who walk in darkness trying to find themselves, the darkness of their own hearts, they can't see where they're going. They're like, you go into a room at home at nighttime and you stumble around and you can't you're going to fall over something. In fact, it brings to mind this new gadget I've seen advertised. Uh, maybe you've seen it. There's this, you, you go into the bathroom at night, it's pitch black. You walk in, and what happens? The toilet lights up. Have you seen that? Okay. Well, that just came into my mind, whether it's appropriate to share it right now or not. So, but anyway, without light, we stumble around in the dark. We're going to fall. And that's what our culture is doing right now. In trying to discover our morality on our own, who we are, our own definition of ourself, Jesus said this. He said this also. He said, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world, so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. We don't look inside of ourselves to find our identity. We look to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior. He's the light. And when we invite him into our lives, he brings, he turns the lights back on inside of our darkened hearts and our darkened minds and our darkened reasons. He flips the switch so we can begin to see who we are. And then he begins to heal the wounds in our life and he begins the process of restoring us to the true identity of who we are as a man or as a woman and all the other things that go into the uniqueness of what your identity was designed and created for God to be. However, what we're seeing in our culture right now, that the solution that's being advocated by our society in our schools, in our public places, is rather than finding our identity in God, is to redefine our gender And that is to redefine gender as being much more than just male or female. In fact, in their gender deconstruction movement, there's a real attempt to get rid of the terms male, female, man, woman. Because they are archaic terms. They are obsolete. And they are terms that for the centuries of world history have too narrowly defined Human beings. The idea today is that gender is fluid. F- gender is on a continuum, with male way over there and female way over there, and some, and, and then with l- different levels of gender diversity stretched out between those two, those two poles. And so, if a so if a society, a society is being too restrictive. A society is being very discriminatory against the many, many people that don't fit the male or the female gender. So we need to be progressive as a society. We need to open this up. We need to get rid of that old, archaic view of viewing humanity so narrowly and allow people to find where they are on the continuum, on the spectrum, to find their own gender mix or their own particular diverse blend of masculine and feminine, all wrapped up inside. Now, I know that that sounds very progressive, and it sounds very, very freeing for a 21st century society to be advocating. But if Jesus were in our society today, the 21st century, he would still say the same thing about who we are that he said in the first century. And he would say about this spectrum of, Of gender fluidity, that what that really is, is a further advance of corruption and self-destructive evil that is only going to lead this society and the world into more confusion and darkness, into further self-destruction. It's not going to lead to fulfillment. That's what everybody's looking for. And God created us to look for fulfillment. But our society and our world is looking for it in, the, in, in, in very self-destructive directions. We need to look back to Jesus Christ. He came to deliver us from all that. And so I'm coming back to the question, is, is America anywhere near the line of societies that finally go so far across the lines that God says, you know what, your time in history is up. Why, did, why would the Lord ever do that to a society? Because the Lord loves us all too much and he loves our children too much, the next generation too much to let us go so far down this path of destruction that, that the next generation is just going to be so much further into darkness that we're providing for them. So this brings us to the role of Christians in society. And I would say this, that never has the presence of Christians in society been so important in the United States as right now. I don't think it's ever been more important. So what is our role as Christians? Number one, to pray. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul said this, I urge then, first of all, that request and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So we're called to pray for our leaders. And Paul is saying here, he's saying this when Nero Nero was leading Rome. So Paul, you know who one of the people that Paul was praying for on Paul's prayer list? He was praying for Nero, and he was calling every other Christian to pray for Nero, too. So we're called to pray as Christians. No matter who's occupying one office, we're called to pray for them and, to, and, to, and intercede. In fact, Paul stacks up three words here, request, pray, intercede, with thanksgiving. For those that are in leadership, even if you don't agree with their policies, we're to, we're to be praying for them. Upholding them in prayer. What are we going to pray about? Well, (laughs) we're going to pray. Are we going to pray like James and John wanted to one day when they walked into the city of, uh, was it Capernaum? They walked in that day and the people weren't very nice to Jesus and they said, Jesus, call down fire and just burn these people up. That's what they wanted to do. Well, you know what? That was very reactionary, wasn't it? Are Christians supposed to be angry and reactionary in their society even when things aren't going right? No. What are we to be doing? We're to be praying. We're to be praying for the peace of the society. We're to be praying for that president. We're to be praying for that congressman or that governor, praying that God, they will, God will touch their own personal lives, but God will bless them with their, their governing abilities and all those kinds of things. So, that, so first of all, we're to be praying in our societies. Number two, the Scripture says, Be the salt of the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Salt does two things. It's a preservative, and it also creates thirst. So we are the church is called to be a preservative in society. How do we do that? By showing Jesus Christ in the way we live, and by taking every opportunity to be a voice for Jesus Christ, a witness for him with people. Uh, and, and as we do that, that creates a thirst in the society to know the same Jesus that we know. So we're to be salt in two different areas, in our own personal relationships, our families. And then secondly, we're to be salt in all the sectors of society. Every every area of society needs the influence of Christians. So that's why all of your professions and your careers are absolutely vital to the spread of the kingdom of God, to salting this earth. Whether you work in, the, in a government job or you are, part, you are a pol- political uh, officer, what, if that's you, God has put you there as a missionary to, to be salt there. Or if you're in business, if you're in education, if you are in arts and entertainment, if you are in media, if you are in social sector, the social services, God wants Christians to be sprinkled salt out of the salt shaker, sprinkled into every area of society so that we can be that preserving, thirst-creating influence for Jesus. I think we as Christians need to recover that mission. You know, America has been called a very uh, consumeristic society, right? That means consumer means... I'm going, to shop at, I'm going to go to all these stores and shop for what I can get. I want to meet my needs. It's very easy to come to church the very same way. It's very easy to think of the church in the very same consumeristic terms. But Jesus, didn't, Jesus did not give a great commission to the church that is consumeristic, did he? He made us, he, he sent us out to lay our lives down to serve other people. And that's what the church is all about. And I would say it this way, that... Until we Christians become as passionate about our mission as the devil is to destroy this nation, how many of you think Satan is very intent? He's, he's got a mission to destroy this nation, to push it across that line in that point of no return. Hey, the devil's working overtime to get that done. And we can see what he's doing all around us. The only hope this nation has, there is no other are people like you and me and people like you and me sitting in churches all across this country being as passionate for the mission of Jesus and with his love for people as the devil is to destroy them. And when, when, that, when, that, when we get to the tipping point of that balance where our mission exceeds Satan's, then the tipping point of our society and, the, and the, perhaps the salvation of our society and the preservation of our society, then that can happen too. But I'll tell you what, if the church doesn't rise up in this day and time, how much hope is there for this country? How many more years down the road? We, we need to think soberly, seriously, because there's no society in the world, none of those I listed a while ago, whose citizens ever sat around thinking, we're at the, we're at the gasping end of our society. None of them thought that, but they all fell. We need to be very serious about this. And then there's one other very important voice we have as citizens. To be a voice, to be a voice as citizens in our culture, in the public square. Now, let me say it this way. To be a voice for God's boundaries through our representatives. That's why they're there, to be a voice for us. And then only with great wisdom and respect utilize the right to protest in things like boycotts, I would say boycotts have got to be done very, very wisely and very sparingly, knowing that they only make a statement, but they are not, the boy- no boycott is ever going to change the value system of our nation. And... Pretty soon, Christians can boycott themselves into a corner <laughs> because there's nobody left to boycott. So we have to be careful with this. We have to really be careful. I'm not saying there's never a time to do that. I do know this, that John the Baptist walked up to Herod one day and in, with a prophetic voice, and he said to Herod, Herod, it is not right for you to take your, uh, your brother's wife. That's not right. Is there a time for a church to rise up in a society and say to the society, prophetically, what you're doing here is not right. And we're going to lift our voice and we're going to take a stand against that. Yes, there are those times, but they've got to be done with the greatest wisdom and the greatest respect. I think the most powerful thing we can do as Christians, the most powerful voice we have is utilizing our vote. But what if our frustration is like the guy in the, in the video clip today? <laughs> we don't know. Is there anyone out there to vote for? Okay. Well, not voting is not an option. We must realize that we live in an earthly kingdom where candidates very often and most often are probably not Christians. Or if they are, they may not be acting like it. Or persons whose values are not all that we would wish for. But in spite of that, each of us must pray and then vote because we live in a democratic republic and we've been given a voice and a right to do this. We can't go bury our heads in the sand and go off and live in some isolated corner. Then we're we're neglecting the responsibility that God has given us. So each of us as Christians must pray and then vote as we best believe God to be leading us, knowing this, that ultimately our trust as citizens and as a nation, as people, as society, is not in the hands of human leaders anyway, not ultimately, not minimizing the importance of their role. We, we heard about that. But ultimately, <laughs> it's God that we're, we're placing this all, we're putting it all in his hands. So the privilege was won, to vote was won for us at a very, very great cost. And so Pastor Randy right now is going to come, and he's going to read, as we draw to a close, he's going to read to you a real-life story about the high price of this privilege to vote. Pastor Randy.
1: Our Forgotten Honor, a Memorial Day Reflection by Tim Willard. I remember not liking him at first. I was an 18-year-old know-it-all with a weak jump shot. He was a six-foot-something, glasses-wearing dad who outplayed everyone in the church gym that Monday night. I don't remember much of the game, but he stuck in my brain. He never seemed to tire and never quit smiling. Afterwards, my father told me the wiry man was a doctor and Army reservist named Mark Connolly. I was surprised that he was a physician, but more surprised that he felt compelled to serve our country by caring for the wounded. After that night, I never saw Dr. Connolly again. Weeks later, my mother called to tell me that Dr. Connolly was killed in action during the Gulf War. He had just called home to talk to his family, and he was on his way back to base when disaster struck. His wife and two children survive him. His memorial service was one of the most powerful I've attended. The community dearly loved him, and our church congregation seemed to heave from the loss. Pastor and Army Colonel Jerry Young led the service, charged with remembering and burying a husband, father, professional, and brother-in-arms. I have never forgotten the tears that fell that day. Many years later, Dr. Mark Connolly's memory returns as I begin planning my family's Memorial Day picnic, my two small daughters will play in the sprinkler, and my in-laws will help grill the burgers and prepare the salad. We will celebrate our life together, eat a bit too much, and plant some herbs. As I reflected on what this holiday actually means, I happened to look at Floyd's house next door. This middle-aged Jersey native who attends church on Sunday and loves his three grown daughters has lined his entire yard with American flags. He is thankful. Thankful for the men and women who paid the ultimate price for our burgers and fries and Cokes and gardens and the ability to live with little regard for our security and safety. I know it's increasingly unpopular to show Christian pride of country. I've discussed with young leaders whether or not it is appropriate to recognize holidays like Memorial Day and Independence Day in our churches. I'm often astonished at the growing lack of honor some display toward our veterans. For us who sacrifice little, if anything— and yet have no qualms about enjoying the luxury and freedom provided by this country, we belie our lack of gratitude with our cavalier attitudes toward the mixture of faith and country. Have we grown so pious? Waving a flag or observing a moment of silence on this Day of Decoration, as it was formerly called in 1868, does not imply support for every American initiative, both foreign and domestic. It simply honors the men and women who have given their lives serving their fellow citizens, and for those who daily fight to protect something they believe serves the common good of all humankind, freedom. Dr. Mark Connolly's commitment to the good of others in a time of war makes me shudder. His memory shames me for all the times I withhold honor from those who deserve it. I wonder if this Memorial Day we can find the space in our picnics and parties and hipster theology to observe a moment of silence for the Mark Connollys of the world. Let us raise our glasses and, in thankful chorus, toast the lives of those who made our day off so special.
0: So, this is not a time for discouragement or giving up hope as Christians, as Americans. I think this can be the greatest hour the church has ever known in our nation because there's never been a greater spiritual vacuum for us to speak into. People are searching. People are hungry for God. We have an opportunity here. Um, And as I said a moment ago, the only hope for this nation is you and I, the church. Now, this morning, uh, along with celebrating Memorial Day and the sacrifice that has given us these freedoms, we're also going to take some time to celebrate communion, which is about the sacrifice and the blood of the Savior who gives us an even deeper kind of freedom, and that's the freedom to know God and the freedom to worship him and the freedom to know a future and a brand new life that only he can give. So we're gonna, uh, I'm going to invite you guys to stand right now as we prepare for communion. And if you're here this morning and you're searching for God, and I talked a little bit ago about struggles in our lives, all of us have those. And if you're here today and you've never brought your struggle to the Lord, if you're looking for the answer to your struggle inside of yourself or somewhere else or in the the directions and solutions that our society is offering for that struggle, I want to encourage you that you're not going to find the answers there. I just encourage you to come to Jesus Christ at his invitation. And Jesus Christ is the light of the world and he'll be the light in your life. If you come to him... He died in that cross, shed his blood so that all of our sins could be forgiven and we could come asking him for uh, repenting and asking him to forgive us. And when we do, Jesus Christ forgives us of all of our sins and then he starts, he comes into our life and he begins to help us discover who we really are. He heals our lives and gives us our future here and forever. So if that's you today, I invite you right where you stand right now to just receive Jesus Christ into your life. Invite him in in your own words, and the Lord will come. He'll come and do that. Father, as we prepare to come to communion this morning, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you, Lord, that he is both truth to get us on the right track, and he's freedom, and he's healer. He is savior. So we celebrate Jesus and are grateful for what he did in his death on that cross. We celebrate his death and we rejoice in his resurrection because there's our hope. So, Father, bless these next moments as we come with sacred spirit and attitude and gratitude to your presence, remembering what Jesus did on that cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.